All right. So today we're going to talk about temptation. And I'm sure as you know, I say that, you're thinking, oh, that's awesome. I came for like the best Sunday. No one really wants to talk about that. No one enjoys it. But I, I think there's something interesting when we, we kind of focus on the idea of temptation, in particular, how temptation kind of interacts with us. And this might just be me, and if it is, this will just be a moment of confession. But my guess is we all kind of connect to the same way, and that is when we're all tempted, we're all kind of, uh, temptation is always an invitation to embrace self-interest, isn't it? I mean, when you think about temptation, we're always tempted to do something that benefits me. Is this going to make my life better? Is this going to make my life easier? Am I going to avoid a really hard conversation? Am I going to do something that's going to spare me some pain later? Like, we're always tempted to preserve ourselves. What is is in it for me? Very rarely do we find ourselves tempted to be selfless, don't we? It's not like we find ourselves being tempted to write another check to that organization who's doing a good work or, or to give up a, a, a free day on Saturday to go help someone move or to take time off, off of my work week to go help someone. We're not tempted to be selfless. But even in those moments where we find ourselves perhaps tempted to do those things, although I don't think most of us fall that way, even when we are, it's, it's not like we're tempted to be better. When we face this, we don't really see it as that kind of temptation. We really, when we see these opportunities or these moments... It's kind of, kind of like, like this. We kind of view it like, like, man, aren't I a good person? Look how much I've given. Look what I was willing to do. I was willing to leave work a little early to help them. I mean, aren't I really good? Very rarely are we tempted to be selfless. But when we are even tempted to be selfless, it becomes an issue of, of, of almost self-interest. More often than not, though, we're all, we're all kind of tempted and we lean towards this idea of embracing self-interest. Is it good for me? Is it going to benefit me? How does this help me? And we end up living our whole lives kind of being tempted to do things that are all about improving our life. And what we find as we walk through this temptation, and this isn't new for me, my guess is this isn't new for you, that as we continue to walk through this temptation and we do things that are revolved around making our life better, when we get to the end of it, we really don't feel better, do we? Really, when we walk through, we kind of hurt ourselves, and not just ourselves, sometimes we even hurt the ones we love. And then Jesus shows up on the scene, and he's always amazing and saying these incredible things. He shows up, and he basically says this, that if you're living this kind of self-interested life, this life where it's all about me and what I want and what I'm doing, and how is this going to help me, that when you get to the end of it all, you've kind of lost everything. That when you get to the end of building up this idea of getting the life you want and doing whatever you can to self-preserve, to build that life, when you get to the end of it all, you've kind of lost it and nothing's there. For the next few weeks, we're going to look at the life of Jesus, follow through his life from the time he showed up on the scene, as Brian introduced it to us last week, to when he actually departs the earth after his resurrection. We're going to look through the life of Jesus because I think there's a lot we can learn from this, and in particular, this theme that we see running through his entire life, this idea that Jesus come to do something brand new. He came to introduce something brand new. As Brian told us last week, he really kind of started this specifically. He introduced a brand new covenant, a covenant that wasn't made between God and a nation as it was in the Old Testament, but a covenant that was made between God and the rest of the world, the whole world for everyone. That Jesus came to introduce this new covenant and this new kind of single governing ethic, this new commandment that would carry out for his entire movement, the church, this new movement that he was starting. And the church would have to live under this new covenant. And the church would live following this single command. And from the beginning, all those who paid attention, all those whose fortunes were kind of tied up in the old way, they were very, very close. It was very, very close to them. 
they kind of understood this, that Jesus didn't come to introduce Judaism 2.0. He didn't come to continue the old. He came to fulfill the old and introduce something brand new. And there was this tension that they lived with in their lives. And that's a tension that I feel like some of us live with even today. Now, previously in 90, we were introduced to the guy who introduced Jesus. His name is John the Baptist. And I guess he's, he's no stranger to you. John the Baptist was a very famous man. He was the baptizer. When he was, came on the scene, he gathered crowds and crowds of people. Thousands of people would come to hear him. He would gather these incredibly large crowds, and then he'd, he'd point their attention to Jesus. He was there to just point to Jesus, to show them the Jesus who was coming, this new thing, this thing they were waiting for. One day, as we heard about last week, Jesus kind of shows up. He's not a very handsome man. The Bible says there's nothing kind of extravagant about him. You wouldn't look at him and think, oh, there's the son of God. He's, he's not tall or handsome or, or, or built like a Greek God. He was just, he looked like an average man. And he shows up on the banks of the Jordan. And, and when he sees him, John points everyone's attention to Jesus. But what John doesn't say is, hey, follow him. Hey, change. Hey, change the way you live or change the way you think or, or, or pretend to do this. John sees Jesus coming. And he basically says, hey, everyone, let me have your attention. Look, behold, the Lamb of God who comes. And this is where we get confused. Some of us think Jesus came to just forgive our sins. John says, no, Jesus came to take away your sins. Not just of the Israelites, not just of his people, but of the entire world. Jesus came to do something brand new. Jesus shows up to John on the banks of the Jordan. John's baptizing people, and Jesus says, John, I want you to baptize me. And John is, is kind of flabbergasted by this. I mean, he's really taken back. Like, Jesus, I can't, I can't baptize you. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the Messiah. You're like, you're like the greatest. Everybody's been waiting for you. I just got done telling all of my followers that I'm not worthy enough to be your servant and untie your sandals. And you want me to baptize you? It's actually said this in, uh, in Matthew. It says, but John tried to deter him. I mean, imagine coming face-to-face -face with God and saying no. I mean, for us, it's easy, right? God's invisible. We say no to God all the time because we can't see him. John is face-to-face -face with God. Jesus says, John, I want you to baptize me. And John's like, no, I'm not going to do it. I can't baptize you. You should be baptizing me, Jesus. This doesn't make any sense. Jesus, this isn't the way it's supposed to work. Jesus, it's like things are flipped around. You shouldn't be submitting yourself to me. I should be submitting myself to you. It's like you got the story wrong. Jesus, you don't understand the way the world works. This is upside down. And that's actually the title of our message this morning, Upside Down. Because when Jesus came and he did something new, he basically flipped the entire paradigm of how we lived and how the world operated upside down. No longer was it done the way it, should, it was done in the old ways, in the, this old kind of kingdom mentality. Now something new has come. Jesus has flipped the tables. He's turned things upside down. Now here's the, the fascinating twist in the plot. At this point, Jesus is, is now a public figure, right? He, he, people are beginning to recognize him. There's this murmur. He hasn't done anything. He hasn't preached a message. He didn't walk on water. He hasn't done any miracles. He's just, there's this kind of murmur about Jesus. There's this, this rumbling going on. And Jesus goes to John the Baptist, and now he's recognized because once he's baptized, there's this whole event that happens with God and the Holy Spirit, and it seems really significant. And then Jesus steps out of the water. And you would imagine this is like his grand introduction, right? He steps out. John recognizes him as the Messiah. God recognizes him as the Son of God. It would almost be like Jesus taking center stage and saying, all right, guys, I'm here. 
Like, this is what you've waited for. Here I am, John. You, you can exit stage right. Like, like, I'm good. This is it. Let's start this thing. But that's not what happens at all. As a matter of fact, when Jesus is baptized, he just goes away. It's almost like this is a teaser. Like, ta-da, here's Jesus. Oh, he'll be back in a little bit. We're not sure where he's going. Jesus goes away after he's baptized. This isn't his grand interest. He goes out into the desert, into the wilderness. And this is where our story picks up. He goes into the wilderness he's led out there by God. It says this, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the diabolos. Excuse me. This is where we get our word diabolical. This is the slanderer or the accuser. Or in our English Bibles, this is what we refer to as the devil. And if you've been in church before, you know where the story goes. You can see the end already coming. You're like, I know where this is headed. I want you to push pause on all your thoughts for a moment because you're going to miss something big. If you haven't been in church before, you're not sure about Jesus or about God, or you're really not sure about the devil, and you're thinking, wait a minute, you want me to believe that there's a devil? Here's the answer. Not right now. Push pause on all of that, because you might get lost. You might miss what's coming. And if you're so hung up on, is there a devil or isn't there, you're going to miss really the point of the story. And here's what we have to, what we have to kind of ask ourselves. When we see things that seem out of the ordinary in, in this, in, in this uh, English Bible we have in this text, we have to ask ourselves, why is it there? But, like, why would the author include this? When we think about ancient literature or read ancient literature, and my guess is you're really not reading any ancient literature but the Bible. I mean, some of you might not even be reading the Bible. You really should. It's a great book. <clears throat> it's really more than, than a book. It's this incredible story of God's interaction with humanity. But when we think about these ancient texts, the reason they have so much weight is because there wasn't many of them. Not many people could write. As a matter of fact, about 90% of the population, they couldn't read or they couldn't write. So when something was written down in an ancient text, it carried weight. It had some credibility and some authority. It's like, think of it this way. When you're having a discussion or an argument with someone, and then to prove your point, someone always says, but I read an article, and the mere fact that you read an article, that somebody wrote something about what you're saying and your opinion, it carries some weight and some credibility. And then if you find out who the author is, it carries even more weight or more credibility. That's how it is in these ancient texts. When the authors would write something, it carried weight because there wasn't much written. So we have to ask ourselves, why would you include something like this? Why would this be in the narrative? Why would you include something that seems odd to us? Because the idea that Jesus, who claimed to be the Son of God, that the embodiment of everything good, would spend time in the wilderness with the embodiment of everything evil or bad. Like, that doesn't, it doesn't fit into our world and into our kind of paradigm. Why would the author include this? <clears throat> and the answer is, is that it's not a lesson on how to overcome temptation, although there is so much in here about how to overcome temptation. You see, it's so much bigger than that. It's so much more epic than that. And what happens next is central to the story of Jesus, because as we're going to see through his life, he is continually tempted time and time and time again. This story covers three temptations, but Luke, another author of the Gospels, would say this is the same temptation Jesus would face throughout his entire life until the very end. And this is a temptation to go to the old. Even though Jesus came to introduce something new, it was a temptation to lean back into the old and do it the way the kingdom used to do it, to do it the way the world has always done it. Jesus, forget what you're going to do and do this. So then the Bible makes the most obvious statement probably ever written in the Bible. It says, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he, Jesus, was hungry. It's like, yeah, no kidding. 
right? Some of you, you're so worried, you're thinking right now, how long is he going to take because I'm hungry? I got to go get lunch and get ready for the Super Bowl and prepare all this food. The idea of fasting one meal scares you. He fasted 40 days and nights. Clearly, he's hungry. And then you have to ask, why would the author include this? Why, why do we need to know he fasted 40 days and 40 nights? It's because they want you to know that he was human. That yes, he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, but he was starving at the end of it. That he was a man. He wasn't just the son of God. He was also a man. That's why John, the other author of the gospel, the gospel of John, <clears throat> he says time and time again, our hands have handled him. Our hands have handled him. We have touched him. He's not an apparition or a ghost or some weird spirit or some kind of lofty idea. He was a human being. He was a man like us. Yes, he was the son of God, but he was also a man. And when he fasted for 40 days and nights, he was starving at the end of it, just like we were. It's like Jesus is kind of saying to the tempter, hey, now's your time. If you're going to tempt me, give it your best shot because this is, like the, this is your moment. Let me show you how serious I am about what I've come to do. And the tempter came to him. This is a new Greek word. Uh, it says uh, parazo, which basically means the inquisitor, the tester, the prodder, or the poker, the person who's trying to get out of him what no other person could ever get out of him. The tempter comes to him and says, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. I mean, that's easy enough for you, Jesus. Like, like if you're really who you say you are, you can do this. As a matter of fact, I've read the beginning of your book, and in there it says that God spoke the whole universe into existence. So what would it be for him to create some bread for you? <clears throat> Clearly, Jesus. I mean, you are Jesus, right? You are you. You're the son of God. Like, you have this kind of power. And if any mortal king had this power, they would do it. Just speak to the stones, turn them to bread, and have something to eat. And Jesus responds to this first temptation by leaning into the old covenant. You see, Jesus' life served as like the hinge there was this old and there was something new, and his life kind of was in the middle of that. He was introducing something new, but he was still in the old. And as he's in the old, he responds from the old. He actually leans back into the old covenant, and he quotes back to the tempter this. He says, it is written, quoting from the Old Testament, men shall not live on bread alone. He's quoting now from Deuteronomy 8. This is when the, the, the children of Israel are, are kind of wandering around and they're, they're, they're starving. They're looking for, for food and God's providing food for them. God's teaching them daily dependence. He's sending manna from heaven and he wants them to depend on God. Depend on me, depend on me, depend on me. And we get this idea that men should not live on bread alone. He says, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Or in other words, even though I'm the son of God, and I've been sent into this world to do something for the world, I will not act on my own. I will not act independently of my heavenly Father. Because to do so, it's so kingdom of this world. It's so old. And I've come to bring you something new. Then the devil took him, the Bible says. The devil took him. Now, as a kid, I, I kind of think to myself as you're looking through like these little picture Bibles, that he kind of like transported somewhere else. He's out in the wilderness where no one sees him. And then the devil took him, kind of like Scotty beamed him from Star Trek. Like, like zoop, and they just showed up wherever the devil wanted to take him. That's not how it went. Jesus spent time with this tempter, with this embodiment of evil, with the devil. They spent time together. They were in the wilderness. And, and the devil, the Luke actually tells us the devil brought him out. The devil brought him somewhere. The devil took him to the holy city of Jerusalem. So they walked to the city, and he had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And again, you kind of get this idea, like they're standing on some like, tall spire where like, no one can even balance, and they're, they're looking down. 
<clears throat> what really happened is he walked over to the southeastern corner of the temple. And on the southeastern corner of the temple, you could look down and it was hundreds and hundreds of feet into the valley of the Kidron. It was so tall that Josephus, a historian, actually said that people who would walk to this corner and look down into this Kidron Valley, they would get so uh, dizzy. They would look down and get dizzy. They would almost faint. They'd have to be pulled away from the edge in case they fall. The devil takes him to the southeast corner and tells him, hey, Jesus, look down. Like, look how high we are right now. If you're the son of God, why don't you just throw yourself off? I mean, really, let's think about it, Jesus. People are beginning to hear you. There's this murmur. People are beginning to wonder who you are. You showed up on the Jordan River, and John says, you're the Messiah, the Lamb of God. Like, like that's a pretty good entrance. But if you were to throw yourself off, hit the ground, and then wake up, like, get up and dust yourself off, man, that is a, a much better entrance. That's spectacular. People would immediately know who you were, Jesus. The glory of you would be spread throughout the nation. Just throw yourself off. Jesus, just, just toss yourself off. And then the devil does something really interesting. At least I find interesting. He begins to quote the Bible back to Jesus. He begins to quote from Psalm 91. It's like he's using the words of God against God's son. He says this, For it is written, he, now he's talking about God, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands. Jesus, you won't even touch, like hit the ground. You'll land lightly on your feet so that you will not even strike your foot against the stone. Or in other words, he's kind of taunting Jesus. Didn't God promise to take care of you? Don't you have faith that God will do what he said he would do? I mean, Jesus, don't you have, have enough faith to do this? Can't you, can't you just kind of like believe enough to get God to do this? And what's interesting is I, I think that's where a lot of faith is even today. We have this confusion in our faith. And for some of us, we've stepped out of faith like this. For some of you, you need to step out of faith like this. For some of you, this is what has offended you about church and about faith altogether and sent you running for the door. It's that if we could just believe enough, God would do whatever we want, want him to do. It's that if we could just say the right things, God would have to do whatever we want him to do. That somehow we can almost manipulate God into doing whatever it is we want. We can name it and claim it. We can believe it and see it. Whatever you want to say. We just, we just got to do the, the secret thing and then God has to do whatever we ask him to do. Jesus answers him. It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And now he's quoting Moses. Moses said this when he was addressing the people of Israel when they were out wandering. And the people of Israel were kind of responding. They were talking to Moses and saying, hey, Moses, God needs to do this for us. We're God's chosen people. He has to do this. God has to give us what we want. We want meat, he gives us meat. If we want water, he gives us water. We're God's people. He needs to do this. And Moses, you can tell, almost responds out of anger. Who are you to test God? God doesn't have to do any of this. You might be God's people, but no one can force God to do anything. But for so many of us in our faith, this is what kind of happens. We, we, we kind of live and we kind of go through our faith trying to almost manipulate God to do what we want. And when our faith goes there, when our faith is if I can find this secret formula, this magic formula, this, this three-step process to convince God or manipulate God to do what I want, kind of like God's this innocent bystander, this genie, and we just have to do this certain thing to get God to do what we want. When that's what our faith becomes, we're no longer practicing Christianity. We're practicing magic that somehow there's some mystical, magical way to get God to do what we want to do. We just have to find the formula for it. Jesus said, that's not how God is. God's not like, like, like some king, some earthly king that you know who sits in heaven with his arms crossed and says, you know what, I just need a little more sacrifice. 
That, that's not enough. That's not enough sacrifice. It's not like he's sitting there with his arm crossing. That's not enough generosity. You've got to do more. You've got to give more. Give me more praise. Tickle my ears. Say the things I like. Do that, and maybe I'll do what you want. He said, that's how earthly kings respond. That's not your father in heaven. As a matter of fact, he said, this is how I want you to, to, to view your father, is that he's just that, a heavenly father who knows everything you need. He doesn't need to be manipulated. You just come to him and say, as a child, and ask. And your father in heaven will delight in giving you those good things. He already knows what you need. He just wants to hear you say and ask, and he will give you the things that you need. But Jesus, that's not how it is on earth. That, that's not how the world works. And you say, you're right, that's old. That's the old kingdom. That's the old way of doing things. I've come to introduce something brand new for you. And these are the first two temptations. And, and by all accounts, Jesus passed swimmingly. Right? Like, by all accounts, he, he, he passed the first two temptations without batting an eye. But it leads us to the third temptation. And the third temptation is really, to me, it's kind of the, the, the whole climax of the story. Everything is kind of built around this. The whole reason I think this is in the narrative is to show us this third temptation. It's the most difficult temptation, and it's the temptation Jesus faces throughout his entire life. And for us, I even believe it's the temptation we face over and over again. But before we dive into that, I want to ask you a question. Here's the question I want to ask you. Why is it that powerful people why is it that powerful people are so inclined to go off the rails? Now, when I first created this slide, I, I was going to put why are, why are powerful men so inclined, but I thought, you know what, we're not sexist here. We're equal shamers. Why is it that people, powerful people, and I might get emails for that, that's okay. <clears throat> why are powerful people so inclined to go off the rails? Now, I know most of the time it's been men, but it can be men or women. Why is it that people who, who essentially get more power, get more influence, get more wealth, why is it that they tend to go off the rails morally, ethically, financially? Why do they tend to, to divert? I mean, we think to ourselves, man, if I had that kind of influence, I would change things. If I had that kind of power, I would change. If I had that money, I'd build orphanages and homeless, and I, I could feed a small city. Like, if I had that, I would do something so radical and so unique. But when we see it time and time again, how often do you ever read about somebody who gained all kinds of power and all kinds of money and all kinds of influence and have it end well? More often than not, it does not end well. Why is it that powerful people are inclined to go off the rails? Now, let me ask you, what is it with bullying? Like, I'm stronger and I'm more powerful than you. So I can dominate over you. I mean, sexual harassment, that, that I, I somehow can control the outcome of this and you got to do what I say. Where, where does that, that idea that come from? That I can control your profession? I can control what kind of opportunities you get or you don't get? It, it's, it's arrogance. It's, it's dismissiveness. It's, it's just th th this idea that somehow it's all about me and what I want and what's, what is going to make me happy and using all of this for my benefit. Why is it that way? Why is it that people who, who, who gain more and more wealth and they spend gobs and gobs, they have all this money and they just buy and they buy and they buy for all these things that they don't even use. But they think they're generous because they, they write a check once a year to an organization and they're looking at the dollar amount, not the percentage. Is it greed? Because we think to ourselves, man, if I just had that kind of money, I could change the world. Why is it that it generally doesn't make people better? it makes them worse. Why do they go off the rails? Why is it that power corrupts? Why is it that there are just so few stories 
of extraordinarily wealthy, powerful people who actually do something to change the world with it. You see, and here's this incredible thing, and I think this is why you should follow Jesus. Because Jesus modeled this and taught this time and time again throughout his ministry. He modeled and he taught and he modeled and he taught and he modeled and he taught. And Jesus had a lot to say about money. He had a lot to say about power. He had a lot to say about using influence. But he modeled this time and time again. He taught us this, that power is not primarily for the benefit of the powerful. No one had ever heard such a thing. But that's not how the world operates. That's not how the world works. We understand how the world works. Even his disciples would say, we understand how the world works. There's, there's levels of authority. There's the guy on the top who gives the command underneath him and underneath him. And, and it's this very vertical view of authority. Jesus would say, not so in my kingdom. That was the old way. But I've come to give you something new. Jesus taught us that wealth is not primarily for the benefit of the wealthy. And Jesus had so much to say about money. He taught so much on money. And he would consistently say over and over and over again that it's a stewardship, that it all belongs to my father, and my father has given you a piece. What are you doing with the piece? What are you doing? He saw money as a test, that if you were given a little and you were responsible and you did things with it, then God could entrust you with more. And very few people passed that test. But my guess is you're probably thinking the same thing I am. But how do I sign up for that test? Because I think I might be the people that pass. Right? It'd be fun. Like, I know it's tough and, and a lot of people don't, but if I could sign up, man, you could see what I would do. How, where do I sign up for that? And the truth is, about 80 to 90% of the world's population would say that if you're sitting here in this room or you're watching us online later, you're already taking that test because you are more rich than 90% of the world will ever be. And that's not how we see it, right? We see it on a scale. Like, like, like there's this scale, uh, and, and, you know, I'm kind of in here in the middle, maybe lower middle, maybe upper middle, but then there's the rich people, and then there's, like, the super rich people, and that's who God's talking about. That's who, that's who Jesus is concerned about. Jesus would say, no, no, what's in your hand? But, but I earned this. I deserve this. I worked for this. Jesus would say, see, it's all my father's. And he's given it to you and he's made you a steward. What's in your hand? What are you doing with what he's entrusted to you? Jesus taught that wealth isn't primarily for the benefit of the wealthy. And then he would say this, influence is not primarily for the benefit of the influential. And then throughout his entire ministry, he was tempted right up until the very last night of his life to to go away from this new thing he wanted to introduce and go back to the old way of doing things, where it was about leveraging power and influence and wealth for his benefit, for my benefit. That's why I think this third temptation is just so on point, and it's, it's the whole point of this story. The text continues. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Now, we know that that can't be the way it was written because there is no mountain that overlooks every kingdom of the world. They didn't have Google Earth like we do. But the idea here is that that the devil kind of brought Jesus to this mountain north of the city. And and the author here, it talks that he he just doesn't show him the kingdoms of the world, but he shows him the kingdoms of the world and all of its splendor and all of its glory and all of its majesty. It's like Jesus and the devil have now spent days, maybe even weeks together as they've traveled and they've gone from place to place. And this is the final one. The devil brings him to this mountain, the tempter. 
and they're overlooking the city of Jerusalem. It's cold, it's, it's dark, it's night, and the city of Jerusalem is just lit up in all of its splendor. And then 16 miles away, there's the city of Jericho. Again, lit up in all of its splendor. This is the epicenter of humanity. This is the epicenter of all that God wants to do, not just in the people of Jerusalem, but to introduce through the people of Israel into the rest of the world. And the, the devil shows him this, and he says, Jesus, look at all of these kingdoms and all of this splendor. I can give that to you. I mean, you know that they're, they're mine anyway. Right? They've been given to me. I can give you all of this. I can give you everything you see. I, I can do that. I mean, after all, we know that's why you're here. Right? You've come to, to, to be the Messiah, to, to be the Savior, to take over, to take all this back. And I know it's yours anyway. I can give you all of this. You just have to do one thing. You just have to do one thing, Jesus. Just bow down and worship me. You don't have to do it forever. Just right now in this moment, admit that all of this is mine and that I can give it to whoever I want. Do that, Jesus, and I'll give all of this to you. I mean, that's what you came for. That's what we want. Right? We all want recognition. We all want more influence. We all want more power. We all want more wealth. Jesus, I could make you, I, I could make you the center of all of this where they would worship you and make you their king. I could do that for you. Just, just bow down and worship me. Just give up this new thing you want to introduce and be content with this old way of doing things where power and influence and wealth is leveraged for your sake. See, but here's the point. Jesus had not come to barter for a kingdom. He had come to introduce a brand new kingdom into the hearts of men and women, a kingdom of conscience, a kingdom that would say the wealth isn't leveraged for the wealthy, that power isn't leveraged for the powerful, that influence isn't leveraged for the influential. It is a kingdom like no other, like one they had never experienced before, one they had never seen kind of carry out and play out. It is a kingdom where, where the subjects weren't... Um, just kind of cast aside based on the whims of the, of the rulers or of the kings, where the subjects didn't have to lay their lives down for the kings. It is a kingdom where the king would lay his life down for the, his subjects. There had never been such a thing. And anyone on the outside looking in would say, but it just doesn't work that way. That is not the way the world works. That is upside down. Jesus responded to Satan. He said, away from me, Satan. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. When the devil had finished tempting, he left him. And this is what Luke tells us. Until an opportune time. It's almost like this way of saying, it's not over. This is just round one. And as long as you're on this earth, Jesus, I'm coming back and I'm coming back, and I'm coming back, and I'm coming back, and I'm going to tempt you every day until you die to give up this new way of doing things, this new thing you want to introduce to this old way of doing it. I'm coming back, Jesus. And every, as far as we know, up until the, his death, Jesus faced this temptation to give up the new that he was there to introduce and to go back to the old. Concludes with this, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread throughout the entire countryside. And then maybe just for fun or maybe to spite the devil, he didn't turn the stones into bread, but he left there and he went and performed his first miracle and turned water into wine. And do you know why he turned water into wine? Because his mom asked him to. 
So I, I kind of feel like the more of this whole story is say yes to your mom and say no to the devil. You'd be much better off. Mom, if you're listening, I love you, and that should earn some serious brownie points. <clears throat> I mean, seriously, you can even do this by a show of hands. How many of you would have been better off in your life if you said yes to your mom and no to the devil? Every hand should go up there. Seriously, when you think about Jesus' life, when you think about him coming to the end, the real point of all of this is that Jesus was offered time and time again on some level the same thing that we all are, are offered and really the same thing that we want. But Jesus had not come to take over. Jesus had come to take away the sins of the world. Jesus had not come to prop himself up. He came to get underneath the burden of humanity and to do something to establish a brand new relationship with our Heavenly Father so that we could be back with him, so that we could know him and know what he wants for us. Later on in his life, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem as he had done this many times before. <clears throat> and that thing that I talked about that he modeled, that he modeled and taught and modeled and taught, He's kind of going over with his disciples again. And as many times as he's taught this, they just, they're, they're thick. They just don't get it. He's taught and he's taught and he's taught. And, and they're walking and the disciples, again, they're just not getting it. So Jesus sits down and has another lecture with them. And he's, he, he just says, guys, I, I want you to wrap your minds around this because this is why I'm here. And I'm not going to let this go. This is why I've came. He said, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Like, guys, I'm serious about this. I know that's not the way the world works. I know that that's, that's not how it operates in this old, cut, in this old kingdom, in, in, the, in this old way of doing things, but I've come to introduce something new, and I will go to, to, to my death to do it. I'm that serious. This old is going to go away, and this new is coming if I have to die to see it happen. Do you know, do you know what Jesus valued more than the kingdoms of the world? You, because you are part of the many. Jesus valued you so much that he was willing to come and give his life for you. Because really, no matter how powerful you are, you aren't powerful enough to break what sin has done to humanity. No matter how wealthy you are, you can't pay a ransom that would somehow restore a relationship with your heavenly father. No matter how influential you are, there is no amount of influence that can force God to do something that is against his will. Jesus said, I have come to be a ransom for you. You see, Jesus knew what hung in the balance. He knew what hung in the balance of him resisting temptation, resisting the old, resisting going back to the way the world works and the way it's always been, and introducing something new. It was you that hung in the balance. And when you're faced with that same temptation to go back into the old, to go back to the old way, to, the, to the, the old kingdom's way of doing things, instead of going into the new that Jesus introduced, do you know what hangs in the balance? You hang in the balance. You are part of the many, and Jesus has done everything he can. He gave everything he had to ransom his life for you. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. But Jesus, that's not how it works. That's not how the world works. That's not how authority works. That's not how leadership works. I said, I know. It's upside down. But that's exactly what I've come to do. 
You see, because for, for so many of us, we can live our lives making ours, our, ourselves the, the primary focus, the center of it all, where everything is, is around us and we do things that benefit only us and, and we spend our whole life trying to make our lives better. When we get to the end of it, we haven't really gained much. We feel smaller. Jesus said, I have come to give you life. But that's not a life you want. Because you'll spend your entire life, you'll spend your entire life trying to amass and trying to gain and trying to be more powerful and have more influence and more wealth. Because it's what we all want. But at the end of it all, what have you gained? He says it this way, and we're going to dive into this in the coming weeks. I think this passage is just absolutely brilliant. He says this, what good is it? What good is it, Americans? What good is it, middle class or upper middle class or rich people or the people who are trying to get there? What good is it if you gain the whole world, if you become the most powerful and the most influential and the most wealthy person alive? What good is it if you gain everything you thought you wanted? What good is it if you've gained everything that, that is revolved around you and your little world and your little bubble? What good is it if you've gained the entire world? yet lose or forfeit their very self. At the end of it all, Jesus would say, the very thing you worked so hard to gain and to keep, you lose. What good is it if we become the most powerful, the most influential, the most wealthy people in the world? But at the end, we have nothing. See, I, I know this is where we want to be because this is the people we admire the most. Nobody admires the most powerful, most influential, most wealthy person who does nothing for humanity. No one wants to be that. The people we read about, the people we talk about, the people we, we idolize a little bit are the people who are so selfless, who take what they've been given and give it out. Jesus said, that's the kingdom I've come to build. I've come to build on that, where whatever you gain, you see it as a steward and you use it for the benefit of others. That's what I've come to introduce. Where the first would be last and the last would be first. Where power would be leveraged for the powerless. Where wealth would be leveraged for those in need. And where influence would be leveraged for those without a voice. And as you can imagine, this didn't sit well with the powerful, the wealthy, and the influential. Because just like back in the first century is very much what we experience today. We don't like things we can't control and we don't understand. They didn't like the idea that Jesus had come to do something new. They didn't understand it. They couldn't control it. And so the temple and the kingdom would come together against Jesus. But they'd be outmaneuvered. Before we get there, there is so much more we need to learn. So come back next week for part three of 90. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this incredible passage, this, this incredible narrative that tells this story of Jesus facing temptation much like we would face God. But he was so different than us. He never sinned. He never gave in. He knew what hung in the balance of him resisting temptation and resisting sin. He knew that we hung in the balance. And he said no. No to the kingdoms of this world. No to the way it used to be done. No to the self-interest. It's all about me and leveraging things for my benefit. He said no to that. And he said, I have come to introduce something completely new. I've come to turn the world upside down. I pray for each of us, Lord, that as we face this temptation, as we face this thought of preserving self, of leveraging everything we have for ourselves, that we would see the folly in that, that you'd give us the wisdom to see what hangs in the balance, 
and the courage to resist. In Jesus' name.